my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know what today is. It's Clark Stinks Day. Later, you won't believe how many retirement accounts are out there that people don't even realize they have. So Clark Stinks in short is where you give me feedback at clark.com slash clarkstinks when you feel that the answer I've given is incomplete, inaccurate, or just plain wrong, or my opinion is way out there somewhere lost in space. Krista goes through the posts on clark.com slash clarkstinks and shares highlights with you here on the podcast. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, we had a few about this topic, Clark. I respectfully disagree with the listener who suggested you shorten your monologue and answer more questions. I really love your openers and appreciate that you are sharing the knowledge you gain from all that you read. I do agree with that listener that I love your podcast so much. I'd love for it to be longer, but I get that you need to live your life. Thanks for all you do, Lee. Lee, thank you. So, Krista, what was the general tone of the posts in response to that last that they, one? They like you to talk and you just make your podcast longer. <laughs> well, the longer part, uh, you're right on that, Lee. I, I got to have a life. On the other aspect, I'll tell you something crazy. Um, it was proprietary research done by one of the big media companies years ago about talk radio. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't violate anything now because everybody's long gone who would have been involved with that research. But it found that when the host of a show is talking, that the average listener interest is at 88% when uh, another topic is being introduced by a caller or whatever in our case by questions the interest level drops to 29 percent so historically people when they tune in to and i'm sure it'd be the same for a podcast as a radio show people tune in to hear that host and that's what they want to hear from and hear from that individual directly so i also agree there are times that I could be a little shorter with my words. Okay, not too stinky, but you don't really understand school accident insurance policies. I was a school business administrator, and every fall, the insurance forums would go home to the students. Insurance covered students playing intramural and interscholastic sports at no charge to the family. The school paid for that. The other policies were offered at about $20 per year for 24-hour coverage and a bit less for school time coverage only. It also covered dental accidents. In a district of about 8,500 kids, we had about 40 kids a year take the insurance. Every year, one or two families would contact us because their child was hurt in a gym class or in school. It was up to them to pay, and a lot of these people had no insurance. I felt so bad for them. If they'd only paid $20, and if they could not afford it, the student was on free or reduced lunch, there would have been a way for them to have it covered through the PTO or other organization. If a family is not insured, this is a great alternative to insure your school-aged children. Corinne. Corinne, thank you for this. And this goes to a core thing for me. And your last sentence 
really fit it if the family is not insured this is a great alternative is as much as people can in their lives they need broad insurance coverage not narrow and yes it's completely true that there will be circumstances instances where someone does at school in a school activity or even away from school they're going to get hurt and they're going to not have coverage and it's going to be a brutal economic cost for someone to buy this kind of coverage who already has a wide insurance policy like a health insurance policy is something I don't recommend. I am reaching out as a medical provider. I keep having patients come in saying that they're being told by Clark Howard where to go for hearing aids. Unfortunately, these recommendations are only based off of a financial viewpoint. All the recommendations have patients going to a hearing aid dealer rather than getting proper care by an audiologist. There is a huge difference in education between a hearing aid dealer and an audiologist. A hearing aid dealer has at least a high school degree and a certification in order to fit hearing aids, whereas an audiologist went to school for eight years, received a doctorate, and is specialized in fitting hearing aids appropriately. There are a lot of variables when it comes to hearing loss, and they need to be medically evaluated and treated. I want to thank you for this post. And you are right that when I talk about something, it is from the financial perspective. And it is true in a number of different areas that an overriding medical issue could be ignored if someone is only seeing someone who has a technical skill instead of, in this case, a medical skill. So I understand what you're saying completely and there is a risk there is a chance that someone just following the dollars in this case could get hurt an overriding thing is the way uh, hearing aids work in the united states and historically has been different than everywhere else in the world is going through a process of change and in the future hearing aids are going to be more world-based market prices just a few hundred bucks for a set of hearing aids and people will pay for the skills and training of the professional they go to see rather than that being buried in the cost of overpriced hearing aids. This is about the lady who paid the $19,000 bill a few days early and forgot she'd set up auto pay. That's why she was out $38,000. I'm pretty sure it's not the bank's fault. I always do human in the loop when it comes to using bill pay with my credit union. The creditors send electronic bills to the credit union, and we manually schedule the payment. I won't do business with any company who wants my checking account direct access. Dave. Dave, thank you. And what you say is kind of how I feel, and that is don't allow organizations to have the ability to draft your account automatically. It's better for you through your own bill pay with your own financial institution, bank, credit union, whatever, to set up where you're in control of paying rather than allowing those automatic drafts. I'm holding my nose all the way from Wisconsin because I can smell your stench even over the potent dairy air that is around here. On a recent podcast, you mentioned that you moved to a high-rise condo with your wife and son and that you enjoyed the lifestyle, but they are not completely sold on it. 
You said you'd give it a try for a year and then possibly reevaluate if they couldn't adjust. You consistently preach the necessity of a homeownership cycle of at least seven years and that a condo could be as long as a 10-year cycle. And now you're contemplating selling after just one year of ownership if it doesn't work out? Why didn't you rent for a year to see if your family also enjoys the ivory tower lifestyle? Love the podcast, Clark, but this really stinks. Gregor. Gregor. (laughs) Happy wife, happy life. I did want to rent for a year. And I was overruled. And uh, I, it, there are things you do for marital bliss. And my wife is upset with me already that I even talked about this on the podcast. But it's, uh, I mean, it's a fact that when we went into this, my thinking was this is what we would do. But it's important that she be happy with where we're living. And if we suffer financial harm from bailing early, then we'll suffer that financial harm. I'm psychologically, I'm prepared for that now. And it is true that particularly in today's market, when you buy a condo, the ownership cycle that you intend to live there should be a minimum 10 years and with a house, a minimum seven years. Can I also just interject that you can afford to do this and you might rent it out if that happens. So you're not, you didn't have to worry as much because you put yourself in a position to not have to freak out if that happens, right? Well, you don't have to defend me on that. The reality (laughs) is Gregor's right that my financial rules would have this being a 10 year or longer decision, but I don't want to live somewhere if my wife is miserable living there, you know, and and if we need to bail, we will. Uh, The update is that I think it's growing on her. I think she likes it more and more, but it is an adjustment if you've never lived in an urban high rise to live that way instead of a single family home with a yard and all that. I can tell you the one thing that's going to happen, and thank goodness I don't have to live through a Wisconsin winter, Gregor, (laughs) is... I'm the one who's going to be taking the dogs out on the walks in the winter when it's cold and dark and nasty. Recently, you mentioned the reason for the housing crisis being primarily due to the recession and lack of new homes being built, but you neglected to mention another huge problem that some of your listeners are contributing to, other home buyers. In my area, it's saturated with single-family homes for rent, and affordable homes for sale are being scooped up so fast and for over asking price by property owners with the intent to rent that everyday folks like my partner and I have only a ghost of a chance and leaving only homes over $1.5 million left for the middle and lower classes. We've been looking at homes for six months and any decent home is off the market within a few days. There are 60% more houses for rent in a 50-mile radius of me than there are for sale. Owning a home and renting is fun if you're retired, need a little extra income, and aren't gouging your tenants for every penny you can legally get, but a couple who listens to your podcast said they own 10 homes they rent. Is that not a problem? Am I wrong? Ariel. Ariel, what happened was after the, um, well, during the real estate bust, following the banking scandals from 7 to 12, a lot of Wall Street outfits set up operations to buy up in bulk single-family homes and they've continued to do so but the economics of it are changing and I'm hoping that we're seeing the last of the bulk buying or just big 
Wall Street money coming in and even individually buying homes as a competitor for hardworking people who want to own their own home. It is a marketplace disruption, no doubt, and it is part of the, the puzzle with these extreme shortages of homes in the United States, and this is part of the problem of having a shortage of 5 to 10 million homes in the U.S. So I understand it is a problem, not so much an individual who owns rental properties, but I'm talking about big Wall Street entities that own thousands and thousands of properties and are always there to write a big check paying cash. They are squeezing a lot of people out of the home market, especially first-time home buyers. All right, you made a lot of people unhappy when you talked about the happiest place on earth, Clark. So I've pulled a few of the Clark stinks about Disney. One, Mr. Howard, my husband and I just Mr. Spe- Howard, yep, on purpose. My husband and I just <laughs> spent three days at Disney World, and each day we brought a mini backpack with granola bars and peanut butter crackers, and paid very little for park food. You also missed the mark about the Epcot Food and Wine Festival going on now through the twentieth of November which features delicious small bites from all over the world. You can buy a preloaded festival gift card that fits your budget and enjoy a variety of foods for a few dollars each. Please share this information with other listeners so that they can both save money and enjoy the variety of tasty foods featured at the festival. Teresa. And then uh, number two, we always bring in our own food and drink to Disneyland, including bottled water and soda. That has never been an issue for the many times we have visited Disneyland. I have to say this does not deter me from still buying expensive, delicious churros or the hand-dipped corn dogs or the candy at the shops, but it does allow us to cut down an extensive cost while being able to enjoy a lot of Disney fun during our visits. I listen to you every day and always learn something. Thank you for what you do, Jenny in Portland. And the last one that I pulled, Disney World's food is not horrible at all. There are many restaurants with high-quality food, but it is pricey. My suggestion is to take advantage of the mobile order option in the park apps to order cheaper food items throughout the park. Looking forward to my next Disney trip with my boyfriend, Mike, and we both love your show, Aldrich. Okay, I appreciate all of you um, setting me straight on the Disney food conundrum. And I wanted to give you some good news about Disney and Universal. I read a long-form story, I think it was in the LA Times, about how both are no longer trying to sell every last ticket they can for every day because they've discovered that people lose some of the fever for the flavor from ultra-long waits in line and that the wait times have uh, reduced in a lot of the parks because of not selling to, you know, selling every last square foot of concrete being covered with people. And if you go and you're waiting a long time, don't blame me. I'm just reporting what I read. And hopefully it is true that the lines in the future are not going to be as um, difficult as they may have been in the past. I'm being careful not to say anything negative about any Disney park because what was clear in the post is people who love going really love going. So straight ahead, I'm going to talk about how you can find more money to go do what you want to do, how you can find missing or lost retirement accounts. We don't 
live a work career like we used to. I think back to when people used to work for one company for an extremely long period of time. My father worked for one company for 29 years. How long did your dad work for? He worked for PepsiCo for 35 years. 35 years. It was, it was just it was just the way things were done. You know, people would go to work for one of these big firms and they called it, called it the golden handcuff that you'd have to work there a certain number of years and a certain age and you'd get a pension, you might get retiree health care, and it was a very corporate paternalistic kind of thing where it was what our culture was in the United States. The culture has been continuing to evolve and both from the standpoint of the workers and from the companies, the companies now basically rent us for a period of time. Companies don't expect us to spend a long time or a lifetime or a full career with them. Occasionally, there are companies that are old school like that, but for the most part, it doesn't work that way anymore. So retirement accounts, you know, uh, pensions. Pensions are rare today, but let's say somebody is, has been out in the work world for decades but they've changed a number of companies over those decades. Do you know there's a decent chance you might not have even been aware of it when you were in your 20s or maybe into your 30s that you had established eligibility, you worked there just long enough, a lot of companies five years would be long enough, some 10 years back then, you may have a little pension you didn't even know was there. You may have lost track of it. And, I mean, track of it, you didn't even know it was there. The other area is 401k plans. So many people work through the years at so many different companies. It's not at all unusual today for somebody over the 40 years of their working lifetime to work for 15 or more companies today. And with many of those, you might have open started a 401k and it ended up being left behind there you move different times over the years that 401k you lose track of and again you forget in a busy life a lot of noise in your life you forget that these things are even there so i want you if either of these things ring possibly true for you i want you to know how to get reunited with the money that you either saved in a 401k that is lost in space now or that you may have earned simply by years of service with the company you worked for years and years before. So I have a guide for you at Clark.com that we just recently posted that walks you through how to find lost accounts. Unclaimed 401ks in the United States, there are 25 million of those. So it could be not 25 million people, but it's because the same person might have more than one that they've lost track of. But 25 million 401k accounts with who knows how many thousands of dollars in them kind of lost in space. So how much money is in those things? 
1.35 trillion. It's one in five dollars wow. in 401k plans people have lost track of. That's serious money. So we got the steps for you to look for those. And I want you to find that money. The pensions, there are some steps you can go through to see if there is money there. And the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is involved with both pensions and now also in some cases with 401k money. And they may be a step to try. But I've got a list for you of things you should do to try to reunite yourself with your money. And just Clark.com is the source for that. And the thing you should do when you change jobs is if you have enough money in there that you can leave it behind, you can leave it behind if you're with a very large employer that has an ultra-low-cost 401k, but often it's best to move it to your own IRA. And maybe even if it was a traditional 401k, pay the tax moving it into a Roth IRA. But it must be to avoid tax problems with the IRS and hassles and rules you got to jump through. You want to transfer that money direct from your old employer plan to wherever you're doing the IRA. Otherwise, the rules are bad, ugly. If you've gone to a new employer that you really like their 401k, it's low cost, and they accept assets from former plans, then you can move the money from one of those to the other, which known as a trustee-to-trustee transfer, and then you're not having to chase down old plans. Krista? This is from Ron in Arizona. This is a 529 plan warning. My mother set up $75,000 in two plans for my kids, her grandkids. She became afflicted with dementia. Oh, I'm sorry. My sister stepped in and got a POA, power of attorney, before she was declared incompetent. She reassigned the 529 monies to her husband. She had no kids. So your sister basically swiped the money. Wow. Ron. I'm really, really sorry. So the owner of the 529, just so you know with the 529 account, the owner is typically the parent, could be a grandparent, and then the beneficiary designation can be changed. So the sister, stepping in with the power of attorney, changed the designated beneficiary to her husband as a backdoor way of stealing the money, Tax will have to be paid in that case. And, Ron, I imagine there's bigger issues involved in the family because that's really, really ugly. If your mom had that kind of money to put into a 529, it means there's probably other money as well. I would recommend that you consider hiring an elder law attorney to see what rights you have to insert yourself into this Uh, first to try to get the money back for your two kids college and second for the bigger issues that'll come along while your mom's still living with dementia and when she passes away and I'm really really sorry and this is a terrible circumstance and please please don't be passive go see an elder law attorney 
or a lawyer who specializes in wills, estates, and trusts. This is from Greg in California. I wanted to give you an update on a previous Ask Clark I did. A while back, I indicated to you my mind was going to explode because you push credit unions so much and hate Zelle. And when my credit union recently teamed with Zelle, I did not know up from down and right from wrong. Good news. I contacted my credit union and I was able to remove Zelle from all of my accounts. I've been put into the not eligible pile for using Zelle. No connection can be made and therefore my money is safe. The world is right again. Greg, thank you. And this is a key warning for all fellow listeners. The banks and uh, the credit unions have been actively adding Zelle to people's accounts because they're really terrified of the market power that's being asserted by Cash App and by Venmo that are both piece by piece launching more and more bank-like services. And so the banks and credit unions circling the wagons are actually allies for once. And they are trying to cram this awful Zell down your throat. I'm not going to tell you that Venmo and Cash App are great things. They're not. But Zelle has some special issues that I despise, including where banks and credit unions are automatically making it active on your accounts, putting you at risk if somebody is able to tap into your account where normally the bank or credit union would have to restore your funds if the money is stolen through the Zelle application that you may not even know is attached to your accounts. The bank can say, or credit union can say, ah, well, washing our hands of it. You know, there's no law protecting you when money's stolen through our Zelle app, so you're just out your money. And that's why you need to make sure that your bank or your credit union has not automatically opted you into Zelle and shut it down just like Greg did. This is from Chris in Texas. I worked as a project manager on one project and quickly realized this was not the job for me. It was basically like herding cats, also known as subcontractors. (laughs) I am a disabled veteran and was looking for something to capitalize on my leadership and time management skills and to fill hours in my day. I fulfilled my obligation 38 days ago and have yet to be paid. The amount is roughly $1,200, so obviously I would not get a lawyer involved due to the small amount. What course of action do you think I have when he will not respond to me? My thought was to tell my story via reviews of his company. I appreciate the daily effort from you and your team. Chris, first, thank you so much for your service to our country in the military. I appreciate you putting your life on the line for us. Second, this is a big problem for anybody working as an independent contractor if you're dealing with an unethical business or operator. So your likely best option is to send a demand letter to this guy who's ignoring you for the $1,200. Be very polite in the letter, but very clear. And then when give them 10 days to pay you the money. When they don't, then you take that letter and you go to small claims court which will have different names in the jurisdiction you live in. But you go to small claims court. You don't need a lawyer. The filing fees are pretty small, Chris. And you file a suit against this business that you were doing the project manager work for. And 
don't know what would happen next, but it is the best avenue you have to try to shake this money loose. And I want to thank you, Chris, and everyone else for listening to this episode of The Clark Howard Show. I really appreciate it. Visit us 24 hours a day for more money info you can trust at clark.com and clarkdeals.com.